who will deliver me from this body of sin? And so with Paul's help, with our brother Paul's help, uh, we've been considering God's gift, haven't we, of his righteous law to humankind. Our culture considers God's law, God's truth, to be outdated and irrelevant for an enlightened people. Our natural instinct as human beings is to discount and reject God's principles because they clash with our inner desires and impulses. Life would be so straightforward and trouble-free if only God had not spoken to constrain our wandering vanity and call us back to himself. So at the beginning of chapter 7, Paul describes how the Christian is released from the law. Uh, We've exchanged one abusive relationship of failed legalism for a new marriage to the Lamb. A marriage which awakens us to a passion, a newfound passion for the new way of the Spirit, Paul says in verse 6. But what does this say about the law? Is the law now redundant? Or worse, is the law to be rejected as sin, something evil uh, and undesirable? That was the question posed by Paul uh, that we examined last week. Well, popular culture would certainly suggest so, wouldn't it? It would suggest that God's word is not suitable for the 21st century. That we'd be better off writing a new set of laws that are more inclusive, more realistic, more compassionate even. Well, I hope that we, along with Paul, have reached the God-honouring conclusion that the law, far from being evil, when in the hands of a gracious and loving God, is a surgeon's tool a tool that can bring us healing when we consent to its use. When we embrace it as a necessary means of rooting out the true evil within us. Because each of us has harboured and nurtured an unhealthy appetite for sin. As natural born lawbreakers, God's law is a rebuff and a challenge that we either flee or face with Christ, the Son of God, who has perfectly kept all of God's commandments, and so whose obedience is accepted in exchange for our disobedience, as he willingly shed his blood for us at the cross, overcoming sin and its consequence, death. Let's continue reading from Romans Chapter 7 and verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. 
And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do not do what I want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. May God help us with understanding as we unpack these verses this morning. Uh, If you're taking notes, I've got three Ps. Firstly, the person. Secondly, the precept. And thirdly, our plea. The person, the precept, and our plea. Okay, so when we're talking about personhood, I want us to think about ourselves. Who are we? Who are we really? Secondly, when we talk about the precepts, precepts just a word beginning with P, that means law. Okay, so we're going to have another comment, recognize three things uh, about how Paul uses the word law in these verses. And then finally, uh, our plea, our great plea uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Firstly then, the person. Who are you and who am I? As Paul reaches the conclusion of this challenging chapter, and let's be honest, the whole of his letter so far has been a challenge, a challenge to our senses, to our egos as human beings, as we wrestle with this idea of who are we? Where do we stand? How can we stand? Jew or Gentile, we are sinful creatures and really i hope that you're finding now that these challenges are the best medicine that any of us could receive rather than the constant massaging of our egos that occurs in our culture today yes it does we are constantly massaged and told there's nothing wrong with you you're perfectly good as you are Uh, You should celebrate you. You should be who you are. This constant massaging of our egos that occurs in our culture today. There are no failures. There are no losers. There are no bad eggs. Everyone, no matter how flawed, must be celebrated. Mustn't they? In our culture today. 
Friends, I've just said that the greatest medicine we could receive is the medicine of God's word. The things that Paul has been challenging us with, the things that come full square against the assumptions of the world. We do ourselves no favours when we gloss over the reality of human sinfulness and human brokenness. And, and also our participation in that brokenness. What we really need, friends, is the truth. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. What do they say in court? So help me God. Do we really want God's help? Let's have God's help. Friends, naturally, without a transforming experience of God's Spirit revealing simultaneously the bad news of our captivity to sinful wrongdoing and the incredibly generous grace in Christ's sacrifice for sinners, without this dual understanding, we will want to discount and deny God and his law. But with this glorious gospel understanding that our loving God has made a way in our impossible wilderness, then we, these weak fleshly vessels, have a hope and can have deliverance in Christ. We can come to know that sin does not have the victory, but rather Christ, our conquering king, has the victory. And the life that he now lives, he lives for us to see and follow him. But what of our flesh and our inclination to sin? Is that a thing of the past? Ought we as believers to know an end to sin? Well, yes and no. And this is what Paul is dealing here uh, with he, here in these remaining verses of chapter 7. The reality of being already saved from sin in Christ, hallelujah, but living a life in flesh not yet perfected. But by grace, being aware of and battling with sin, with the Lord's help. There have been good and honourable believers who have thought that chapter 7 of Romans reflect the old, unbelieving person before coming to life in the spirit, as we see in chapter 8, as we'll see next week. But I want us to see four reasons why this view is faulty. The view that chapter 7 describes an unbeliever. Right? I believe that it... it describes us in our current battle with the flesh. Firstly, whilst the verbs in verses 7 through 13 are in the past tense, okay, so they're speaking as life as it was, from verse 14, these, ver these, uh, these verbs switch to the present tense, suggesting that Paul is now talking about himself now as he knows life. Next, in verses 7 through 13, Paul talks of sin having killed him. He has realised that he was dead, but now Paul discusses sin as an ongoing battle that he is aware of. 
but that he struggles on valiantly and confidently with the help that comes from God. A battle that we also, as believers, are called to. Thirdly, Paul now properly delights in God's law, in his inner being, as he says in verse 22. But in verse 7 of the next chapter, chapter 8, we are told that the unbeliever cannot truly delight in God's law. Rather, it says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so Paul's words in verse 22 of chapter 7 cannot be the words of an unbeliever. Finally, in verse 18, Paul confesses and admits to being a sinner. Even as we heard from 1 John, if we say that we're without sin, then we're liars. Right? This is the result of a true and realistic understanding, this confession. A true and realistic understanding of who we are as people. Though created in the image of God, we chose to rebel and become sinners. Unbelievers are unaware that they are lost and unable to save themselves. This is why our culture denies the exclusive salvation found in Christ alone. According to our culture, whichever way you choose to save yourself is just fine. Great, go ahead. Lots of ways to save yourselves. But Paul makes it clear that acknowledging our sinfulness and flinging ourselves on the mercy of Christ is our only hope. So within us exists a battle as we come to terms with God's righteousness and his perfect law which reflects that righteousness. As we come to terms with that and our unrighteousness, our unworthiness. To the eternal praise of God's wondrous name, he has made a way in Christ to reconcile these two things. For the Christian, the question is settled, even though the conflict isn't yet. As believers, we now see God's law as spiritual, verse 14. It is something beautiful. It is something which adorns God and adorns Christ. And now, as believers, we desire to keep it. Verse 15, verse 18. And we agree that the Lord is, law is good. Verse 16. Now, along with Paul in our inner being, deeply who we are rejoices in the righteous law of God. Not because we can keep it perfectly, but because Christ has and he is making us more like himself. This, friends, is our true self as believers. Won over by the selfless love of Christ and now allied to his cause, the cause of grace. And we can now help other sinners to find this wondrous grace of Christ. Because we no longer need to pretend that we're all right, Jack. You can ditch those masks, friends. We can be totally honest about who we are. 
We can be totally honest about who we are, both in our sinful nature and who God is making us to be in our inner being. Let's just take in that fresh air for a moment, shall we? Take in that fresh air. We can be who we are in Christ without hiding anything. Amen? Because the law and the purposes of God have become our inmost delight. Haven't they? The law of my mind, that Paul says in verse 23. But there is a very real war being waged within us. The sinful impulses and desires within us are not the real us anymore if we have come to Christ, if we have become uh, truly born again followers of Jesus. We now delight in him and his ways and our inmost desire is to be fully transformed, to be like him. As we saw back in chapter 6 of Romans, the believer is a new creation, pursuing God's ways, loving his law and his holiness, desiring to be set apart and finding ways to see that realised in our lives. This is a battle that we must engage in. Because along with Paul, we find ourselves with a powerful urge remaining which seeks what we now hate, verse 15. And furthermore, on our own, we remain unable through our own efforts to keep the law. Christ has broken those chains. Yet we are still very much engaged in a spiritual war within ourselves. And so let us take on and take up the full armour of God. And a vital part of that armour is of course the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. Friends, that is who we are. We are something of a walking contradiction, even though the truth which prevails and trumps everything else is who we are in Christ. He is our inmost desire. His law, his righteousness his exaltation. So may he help us through his word. This is the second point, the precept. There's three further things to say about the law of God, what it is and what it isn't. Each of Paul's uses of the word law here in these verses in chapter 7 can mean three different things. And there's ample reason why Peter said of Paul's writings They can be hard to understand. Paul has been talking honestly in these verses about what it's like to live as a follower of Jesus. So in order to help us understand, we need to know the three ways that Paul uses the word law in this text. Firstly, it simply means the written code, God's law, as in verses 14, 16, 22 and 25. Secondly, in verse 21, Paul uses the word law to describe a principle at work that he recognises in his own experience. Maybe you recognise it in your experience as well, this principle. Paul says, so I find it to be a law 
that when I want to do right, evil lies closely at hand. Isn't that often our experience? The moment we plan to do some Bible study or prayer or ministry, sin immediately tries to undermine and snatch away our good intentions. So there is a law, there is a principle at work within us. And thirdly, Paul describes a force or a power that remains at work in him. In verse 23, he says, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. Okay, So Paul's mind has been renewed and captivated by Christ. In verse 25, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Though Paul is now convinced of God's righteousness and, the, and goodness and holiness, he's convinced of the desirability of God's ways, he recognises that sin within him battles against that inmost desire, his new desire to be holy as Christ is holy. Friends, one of the greatest favours that we can do for ourselves is to admit our sinfulness and our struggle especially as Christians because we have a great saviour who has himself done everything necessary to save us and who has limitless power to aid us in our struggles so let us freely come to him now in our struggles let us freely come to him now and access that limited, unlimited power that he has through his spirit. Finally, our plea. Let us give thanks wholeheartedly. I love that word, wholeheartedly. Yeah? It's not part-heartedly. It's not just with a little bit of myself. It's wholeheartedly. Let us give thanks wholeheartedly that God has heard our pleas for mercy. And he's delivered us in Christ from all our sin. But let us also heed the warning not to think that we've progressed beyond the need to see and acknowledge our sin. After all, one of the fruits of uh, God, of Christ within us as Christians, is humility, meekness and humility. If we start to believe that we're pretty good Christians now that we are over sin then friends we're in great danger of a prideful form instead let us recognise that if we are progressing if we like Paul are truly getting closer to the sun then the more we will feel his heat as he purifies and refines us and the more, as, as his perfect light penetrates to the core of our being, the reality is that this grace, the holier we are, the less holier we will feel. But also the greater and more marvellous our Saviour will be to us. All the more we will fling ourselves on him, our blessed Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our plea 
our hope and our great Redeemer. So Paul has shown us that the Christian heart cries two things simultaneously. Considering our own efforts and failures, we cry as Paul does in verse 24. What a wretched man or woman I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Without acknowledging our complete spiritual poverty and helplessness, we can never truly appreciate the glory of the gospel of grace. In fact, the gospel gets emptied of its grace if we are at all worthy. Instead, recognising our total dependence on Christ results in him being properly magnified and praised as is right and ordained by God. And so who will rescue us? Who will rescue us, Paul? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 25. And by acknowledging that in his mind a Christian is a slave to the law of God, verse 24, but in the sinful nature which we battle throughout this life, we are servants of the law of sin. Looking back at all that Paul has taught us about the universal fallenness of humankind, we acknowledge now freely our own complicity and participation in that sinful rebellion. Indeed, even the remnants of fleshly desires that remain in us, warring against our our redeemed souls. Friends, in ourselves we have no hope, no ability to redeem ourselves. But in Christ, our plea, we have a great and mighty Saviour. Chapters 1 through 4 of Romans have shown us that only Christ on his cross can purchase back a broken world. A world broken by sin. Chapters 5 and 6 declare that in Christ's righteousness alone can we rest. And chapter 7 has shown us that God's Spirit alone can renew and transform our minds to make us rely on him alone in our continuing battle with sin. It is us who are wretched. But God is unimaginably good. And he has sent his Son to rescue us and his Spirit to empower and change us, to fit us, for all eternity, as we enjoy him and all his benefits forever. Will you come along and join the glorious battle? Let's bow our heads in prayer.